Welcome to the New Life Millbrook Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit nlmillbrook.com. So we're going to dive into Second Chronicles. It's in the Old Testament, not Corinthians. Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 7. It's kind of going to be our, our big verse passage today. Um, I gave our awesome media team our scriptures, so they'll be on the screen above my head when, in a second. But just give you guys a quick backstory as you guys are turning there. Second Chronicles chapter 7 is a unique passage because it is when Solomon, Israel, is now dedicating uh, the temple that he has built for God. Uh, until this time, God has lived more or less in a tent. Uh, we called it the tabernacle, but it was something that you could set up, you could tear down. Uh, they were a nomadic people for a long time, so that they would need to transfer that as they shifted. But now they've been stationed for quite some time. They've been that spot since Saul. They've been there through David, and now Solomon is building something great for God. And I find it interesting because it's a transition, if you will. It's a transition from people who are having the ability to, to set up and tear down God's presence, if you will, and move it to a place that it's a fixture in the city for all eternity. And this is kind of what takes place in our lives, and very similar to what's going on in their lives, is that for kings, uh, for judges, um, sometimes they would serve God, sometimes they would serve uh, another God called Baal, sometimes they would do all these different things, and when their highs, the tabernacle was there, and when there's low, the tabernacle's in hiding. And I I looked at this today, or last night, um, very differently, because I feel like that's a lot of times where we are is that we have a tabernacle relationship with God instead of a temple relationship with God. A tabernacle where based on if I feel like it or not, I'm connected with him, but then when I move, he can stay there. Whenever I want to go somewhere else, or whenever I want to, and it creates this issue where we find ourselves picking and choosing whether or not we're chasing after God. We're finding ourselves in a spot of convenience that as we move, we expect God to move with us. That when I make a decision, I just want to pack God up and make him come with me. And now in this spot, it's stuck. It's in one location, and now it's their responsibility to go directly to it. It doesn't matter if they are, 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 are of Jewish uh, heritage that live across the seas. When they need to go make sacrifices, they go to it. They don't have to go into town and where the tabernacle is, like they didn't pass, they go and say, where's the temple? And that temple stays there. So this is Solomon. He has built this temple that is just magnificent. It is the best looking temple you can possibly imagine. And it is, he's getting ready to dedicate it to God. And it says this in verse one. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven. This fire is the fire of God to take up the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Um, this same fire, once it started, historians will tell us that once this fire dropped, they would keep this same fire going all the way till the Babylonian captivity. So this is something that they understood was important. That it wasn't something that they were going to get again tomorrow. What if we came into a spot and worship every single time, and when God's presence came, we held on to it and didn't just go, well, that was fun. I got my goosebumps. I'm going to come back next week. What if it was something that we kept going all week long? 
That as you're driving down the road, you continued in his presence. As you're sitting at your office and you're finding yourself stressed out, you're finding yourself like you've lost peace, you find back that fire again. You find that presence. As you're dealing with issues with your crazy kids or your crazy spouse or whatever is going on, you find that presence. You don't let it go. You don't lose it on a Monday and have to wait till a Sunday to find it again. This is something that dropped down and it filled the house. Verse 2, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good and his mercy endureth forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That's a lot. And by the way, they weren't one of those, like, we're going to put it in the offering plate and watch it go away. This is a gruesome experience of sacrifice. This is something that their, their sacrifice, the rawness of what was going on, was celebrated, not shunned. That in the messiness of their worship, People weren't looking at them going, that's too much. That's, a, that's making me uncomfortable. You need to pull it back a little bit. I was okay with a couple of things, but that's too far. No, no, no. What happens in a culture when the more exuberant of worship that we're doing in this moment, it's more cheered on than it is shunned? I'm not talking about emotionalism where we're trying to conjure up something and poke ourselves in the eye to cry. But what I am saying is when we create a culture of people who are so hungry for the presence that they spur each other on in their deeds and actions of the presence, it creates a culture where more people want to push in. Have you ever found yourself, and this is maybe just me, I, I have been in church my entire life. Um, I think I was born right now. Um, I, I have, I was, uh, but you go in and I found myself sometimes when I am in the zone. You know what I'm talking about? Like you've had that week. The greatest week of all with God. Every day you feel his presence. You've got worship music going on. And do you know what I'm talking about? Like you've been there. And then you walk into church expecting to intensify. And then you walk into church and everyone is this. And you felt like every bit of momentum you had was just squashed out. Have you ever been there before? I, I can tell you I have. And I'm not anybody under the bus because I've been the ones who's had his hand raised. I've had his hands in his pocket. And I'm not judging anybody. But I can tell you, because I've been up here, and we've had a, a rehearsal, if you will, because before we play on Sunday mornings, we'll, we'll practice, and we, the God, the, oh my goodness, the presence of God was there. And then you people came in? No. I've had the opposite. I've had the opposite when I didn't even want to be here. I've had the opposite when I didn't want to play. Well, I was kind of hoping that I would come up with a bug so I could call EJ and say I can't make it. Because I just didn't want to be here. But you know what? I didn't get sick. And I'm a man of my word, and if I said I'm going to be somewhere, I'm going to be somewhere. And so I came up here, bad attitude and all, and I began to play. But you people wanted to connect with God and changed my attitude. 
Because what happens and what people lose here is this. As a community, when it says don't forsake the assembling of the saints, because as a community, we rise each other up. Is what we're supposed to be doing. When we're having the bad days, we're having the bad weeks, can I tell you this year hasn't been the best? When you've had a bad year or two, and you get into a spot where people are excited about God and you can feel his presence, man, come on somebody. And this is what's taking place right now is these people are going, I don't care how messy this looks, we're going to worship. Currently, just being very transparent, uh, mainly because I don't have good notes. I found out about 10 o'clock last night that I was doing this, so here we go. We are watching nationwide. I haven't talked to some of our, our global partners, but nationwide, the 20s and 30s and somewhat 40s groups dwindled dramatically in church. It's the great exodus. What age group has kids? 20s, 30s. If you're a late bloomer, Julie, four, no, uh, 40s. <laughs> she continue, I'm proud of you. Oh, that was a good one. I'm continuous. Uh, uh, whew, I'm going to let that one slide. Uh, uh, I wanna, uh, nope, nope. Take the high road, Pete. Um, it's one of those things where you're watching an entire generation not be raised in church now. So what do you think it's going to look like? So I've talked to a many, 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 many different church leaders, and I've asked them of various denominations, of various styles, those who do hymnals to those who look like it's at an ACDC concert, okay? That's, I'm not judging anybody, but we're talking light, smoke, everything shakes. It's cool. I've watched churches do huge giveaways, and I've watched churches do big serve days. And you know what I've noticed? None of it's working. You, can anybody tell me why? The heart. The heart's not there. And what we've seen for years and years and years is a convenience Christianity. And now we're walking ourselves into this line where we're going, what happens when it's not convenient anymore? And this is where my stance has pivoted majorly into this. If we are a church that hosts the presence of God, it's not a gimmick. Because I can't create it. If I create hype and I pay everybody 100 bucks to come to church next week, I'm paying everybody 100 bucks to come to church. You're not coming to church to connect with him or his presence. You're coming to connect with my money. And church, the temple, is supposed to be about his presence. The great debate among pastors is, is Sunday morning service for the believer or for the non-believer? Are we here to edify each other? Are we here to reach the lost? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, because one thing that I've noticed about the presence of God is it edifies everybody, and it's a great what in the world is going on for those who don't understand, and they want to know more. Well, Pete, if the presence of God comes, it's going to freak the unbelievers out, and they're going to run. You know who I've noticed? It's the believers that run. Acts chapter 2 shows me that as they were in one accord praying in other tongues, the fire drops. The unbelievers are like, what in the heck is happening here? And they explained what was happening there. And 3,000 became saved in one day. You know who hated them? The church. This whole fear of I can't express my worship because I may offend somebody else is a joke. 
How come I can express my praise and adoration yesterday afternoon watching a beatdown against Ole Miss? No offense. Um, she's not even here for this. Well played. Well played. How come I can stand there with 102,000 people, lose my mind, and everybody goes, I like the way you, you, you scream for an unknown name that will never know that I even exist, but whenever I worship a creator who has a plan and a purpose for your life, you got to tone it down a little bit. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm not soapboxing here, but I'm trying to ask ourselves, what are we doing as a church? Because what's supposed to happen is this. If you look at this, the children of Israel brought an offering of worship as sacrifice, and the entire community watched the fire drop. What is supposed to happen on a Sunday service is, as believers, we bring in a worship. I'm not talking about just tithes and offerings. I'm talking about a praise unto God, a heart to connect with Him. And we all bring something that unifies us together. We watch the fire of God drop. The unbeliever goes, what's happening at New Life? I want to experience that. Because if all we're doing is we're trading off goosebumps, they can go to a concert for that. I was at a movie yesterday. It was okay. But the air conditioner hit right, got goosebumps. That wasn't God. It was cold. We can't judge church service based on my entertainment. It's based on whether I'm connecting to my creator or not. And in this location, they are connecting with God. And King Solomon did not care that he was going to create a mess. Because his heart to connect was greater than his concern for offending other Jewish men and women. Okay. Chapter, verse 8. At the same time, Solomon kept the feast for seven days, and all Israel with him, and a very great congregation from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt. And in the eighth day, they made a solemn assembly, for they kept the dedication of the altar for seven days, and the feast for seven days. And on and on the three and twentieth day of the seventh month, he sent the people away in their tents, glad and merry in heart for the goodness that the Lord had shown unto David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Verse 11, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came unto Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. He prospered. Can you imagine that? What would happen if we brought a praise so great unto the house of God that everything that happened outside of the church prospered? Because the Bible says that everything your hand touches should prosper, but it's based out of a heart of worshiping Him. Because whatever He touches prospers. So when you're in His presence and He touches you, whatever you touch should be prospering also. We're concerned about a COVID virus being contagious, but His presence is contagious. When His presence is on you, whatever you touch prospers. You're worried about your marriage? Get into His presence. You're worried about your kids? Get into His presence. You're worried about your job? You're worried about the economy? You're worried about all those things? Get into His presence. Verse 12, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and this is what God said unto him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or 
if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Here's the kicker. If you see bad things coming, here is your response. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal heal their land. This uh, verse 14 has become kind of a bumper sticker verse for many people. We're good at praying. We are decent at music and seeking his face. But one thing that I feel like as a society has done is that we have been horrible with repentance. This is the the next part of that verse. If you humble yourself, if you pray, seek his face and turn, which is repent. Repentance. It's, it's part of the legs of the stool. Praying and putting on good music without repentance is going to cause you to fall over every single time. Humble yourself and pray. Seek your face. Turn. See, a lot of times we have thought that repentance is, oh, my bad, God. Yeah, that's it. My bad, God. Today, we're going to quickly go through the four things of repentance. This is going to help you with your relationship with God and everyone around you. Because not only do we repent to God, we repent to each other also. Let me try it over here. Not only are we called to repent to God, we're called to repent to each other also. We're supposed to do something. Number one, the very first thing that you're supposed to have is contrition. Contrition. Repentance takes contrition. If you're taking notes, the word is contrition. If you're not taking notes, just pretend you are. Contrition is a broken-heartedness of doing wrong. The very first sign of true repentance is a broken-heartedness of what you did. Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us into pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will receive us, and on the third day, He will restore us, that we may live in His presence. In this passage, the prophet Hosea calls to the people of Israel because they've wandered so far away from God. They have done so many things. They've worshipped idols. They've gone through a horrible scenario of their lives. They're, 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 they're serving the Canaanite gods and all these things. And this invitation that's being sent out is for them to repent of their sins and to turn back into God. And contrition isn't a word that we hear very often. Contrition isn't something that's a buzzword in churches in a lot of ways. It really means a heart that is sorrowful for sin with the desire to change it. It describes people who are brokenhearted because they have wronged God or someone else. Many times I, I, I hear people tell others that they have, they've sinned and they need to repent, and it comes, it comes across kind of like when you catch your kids doing something wrong. All right? When another kid, you hear somebody crying, what happened? He hit me! Did you hit him? 
No. Did you did he hit himself? N- no. So you hit him? I guess. Say you're sorry. Sorry. That's not contrition. That's what takes place a lot of times in our lives. Is that we hear something that we're doing wrong. We we have done something wrong against somebody else, and we get aggravated that they're hurt by what we've done. Contrition is looking at the devastation that you have caused and truly feeling sorry for it. I'm not going to stand here and lie because there's many times where I too have had somebody point out my sin and I'm like, oh, oh, you're right. Let me go pray about it. My bad, God. That wasn't a brokenheartedness. It was going through the motions of a kid who just got in trouble by his parents. And to be honest, I was probably more upset than I got caught than of actually what I did. Let me put it this way. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10 through 13, we see, Tom's sake, I'll paraphrase, we see Adam and Eve sinned. They ate of the fruit. They did what they're supposed to, they, they, did, they did what they weren't supposed to do. God shows up and goes, hey, where are you guys? And I was like, I hid myself because I was naked. Well, who told you you were naked? See, what had happened was, that woman you gave me, she gave me an apple and I, or gave me fruit and I ate it. What did you do, Eve? See, that snake that you created talked me into something. See, contrition isn't blaming somebody else for what you did. That's what happens so many times. God, I, I wouldn't have done it if this wouldn't have happened. If you didn't do this, God, or, or if you wouldn't have said this, or if this wouldn't have taken place and I wouldn't have done that, I'm sorry I did it, but it's not my fault. How many times have we heard that one? I'm sorry that I said what I said, but you know I have a temper. That's contrition. That's excuses. If you would have been a better pastor, I wouldn't have sinned. If you would have been a better this, then I wouldn't have done that. If you wouldn't have said this, if my parents would have done that, and we're always blaming everybody else for what we've done. A heart of repentance is one of contrition where it's broken because of what it's done. In 2 Kings 22, we see a new king on the scene. And for years, they didn't have the law of the Lord. They lived their life not ignoring it. They didn't even know what it was for years. Then they find it. There's a big celebration. They read it out loud, and they realize... We've been living horrible. What does the king do? Tears his clothes, calls a fast, falls on his face to repent. That's contrition. That there is not an expression of, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. The show. Going is, I see what I've done, and I'm heartbroken that I've done it. You ever had that moment where you've done something and you go, what did I just do? And you had that pit, that brokenheartedness of what just took place. That's contrition. True contrition isn't finger-pointing and blame-shifting. It's not minimizing our offense. It was just a mistake. It's not a big deal. Let's be honest. I've done worse things. That's not contrition. True contrition doesn't worry about definitions. Remember the Lewinsky-Clinton scandal? When he couldn't define what is is? 
That's coming up with definitions to get around what you want to get around. Contrition's not looking for a way to get out of something. It's realizing the wrongness of what we've done and stepping into it. The second thing of repentance is confession. Full confession of what you did and why it was wrong. Confession. Webster's Dictionary says, Confession is a statement in which you say that you have done something wrong, the act of telling people something that has made you embarrassed or ashamed, the act of telling your sins to God. In our Protestant Christianity, a lot of times confession has gone out the window. So my dad was raised Catholic, going to the priest, confessing your sins, telling that has been part of their life. And you know what's crazy is this. That sounds bizarre to many of us, but the Bible says confess your sins one to another that you may be restored. It's a part of what we're doing because what we keep in the darkness stays in the darkness. Now, I'm not saying that every single Sunday you need to grab a microphone and be like, let me tell you what I did last night. It's not what I'm talking about. But we also don't go and make, mis- make, make, make bad choices, fall into sin, choose sin, whatever it may be, and then just ignore it. Because one of the key components of conf- confession is this, is I'm not only confessing what I did, I'm also searching out the why behind what I did. You're not just going, God, I confess that I lied. What true confession is, is going into a little deeper. God, I'm confessing that I didn't believe you. I didn't have enough faith in who you were and what you said. I believed something else, so I lied. It's digging in deeper than just confessing, I ran a stop sign, I sped too fast, I did whatever. No, 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 it's the why. True confession is digging down deep and looking, at, looking, looking deeper. Confession forces us to look into the mirror of our actions and ask a harder question. Not just what did we do, but why? Because as long as we're just over here knocking off the fruit of the tree, it's going to continue to produce fruit. We've got to get down deeper into our sin life, into our personal lives, into whatever it is, and ask the question, why? And so when you're dealing with your kids, and, you're, and they're saying, I'm sorry, well, why are you sorry? I'm sorry that I did that. Well, why did you do that? That phrase of, I don't know, bothers me. My kids do this, and I don't know, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just a cop-out thing that this, Laziness. I don't know what it is. Does anybody else, as a parent, you, you get that? Why, why did, what did you just do that for? I don't know. Nope. I don't know. It doesn't work. Why did you do that, Malachi? I don't know. Son, one more time. Why did you do that? I don't know. Hey, McKinnon. Can you get the spanking spoon? So, Dad, what happened was I, and all of a sudden, his memory just comes. This is why I did it. Who'd have thunk it? It's amazing. Because if we can get to the why, we can stop the what's. A lot of us, many of us, aren't dealing with 150 different types of sin. It's typically three to five, over and over and over again. I'm sorry, God. My bad, God. Every weekend, every other weekend, we repent of this. Repent. We say, I'm sorry for the same things over and over and over again. But confession is supposed to dig down deep to figure out the why. Because what true sin is, isn't just what you did. It's not believing in him. 
Sin is more than just the action. It's the thought of, I'm not believing that He's enough. And why? i got to dig that weed up out of my garden or it'll reproduce again. See, the problem with Adam and Eve was they felt like God was holding out on them and that this tree, this fruit, would give them what they felt like they were missing. A lot of times our sin is the exact same way. It's us feeling like we're left out of something, whether it's peace or joy or love or acceptance or finances or whatever it is, and we, we have something that we're lacking and we don't trust God in it, so we do it ourselves and it causes problems. Most of our sin isn't out just burning buildings because we feel like we want to see a fire and watch the world burn. I hope not. Most of it is, there's an issue in my life that I feel like I'm lacking in, and instead of relying on Him and seeking it out, I'm going to figure it out myself and cause a mess. And then when I'm going to say, I'm sorry for that mess, I'll try another angle, sin. I'll try another angle, sin. And we keep circling around the same issues. This is why people, especially who's dealt with some childhood traumas, if they don't seriously sit down and dig it out, they will keep circling around this mountain for the rest of their lives. And this is what happens with, in my life. This is what happened in, in your life. Something takes place. We're not blaming mommy and daddy. We're not blaming, yeah, you may have had horrible parents. I'm not minimizing that. But at what time do we stop circling the mountain and dig it out? When do you stop? Let me put it this way. Steve and Linda are married. And I'm going to say that Steve has a horrible temper. Temper. I don't know if he does. He looks like an angry... No, I'm just playing. Um, so Linda cleans the house. Everything's great. Food's on the table. Steve has a horrible day at work. I'm speaking in faith, Steve. You can hold on to that one. Uh, uh, Steve has a bad day at work. Slings the door open. Slams the door. Looks at the food. Grabs his hand and just cleans the table off. <laughs> she said he did. Oh, for those online who missed that one, he did. She said, I got a shovel in the back. No. Linda walks in and goes, What'd you do? I had a bad day. But Steve realizes that he's an idiot. So Steve, what should you do? Clean it up. Yeah, clean it up. Everybody agree with that? So the next day, Steve comes home. He's in a good mood. Opens the door gently, closes the door gently, walks around, looks at the food. That looks good. What? Linda clears it off because she remembers what Steve did. So she's mad. Remember yesterday you did that? And she flips it over like the Hulk. <laughs> She's been working out. Most likely, Steve's going to be like, whoa. And she starts freaking out because of what he did yesterday. Okay. They clean it up, right? They clean it up. It happens like that every day for a month. Let me ask you a question. At what point is this now Linda's mess and not Steve's? Two times? Three times? Thirty times? And this is where we find ourselves with that example. 
at what point is the issues that happen in our lives stop being somebody else's fault and we have to realize we keep making the messes ourselves? After six months of her getting mad at Steve for what he did six months ago, flipping the tables over, there's got to be a point where she realizes, I've got to move on. Duh. But we hold things on for six months, six years, 60 years. Because there's, for some reason inside of us, we love to hold on to our victimness, and we just want to hold on to this. Instead of confessing the healing that we need, we hold on to it and sit here, and then we want to blame everybody else for the continual sin that we keep finding ourselves in. On the same thing. It's the same tree producing fruit, and we're whacking the, the apples off the tree and wondering why it keeps growing back, because the tree's still there. Confession is meant to dig the tree out. Because it's more than just, I'm sorry for what I did. It's the, God, I'm sorry for what I did and the why. Why am I doing this over and over again? Have you done that? Have you stopped to go, why do I keep dealing with anger issues over and over and over again? God, Holy Spirit, reveal it to me. Pray about it. Seek it out. Dig that tree out. Number three. Repentance is, is um, contrition. It's confession. Big one here, change. Got to change. I'm not saying you have to be perfect from the day one. I'm not saying if you sat there and you're sorrowful, you're confessing, you're doing your thing, the next week you're not going to slip up again. A righteous man does fall seven, gets up eight, but he adjusts. That's the kicker is we got to keep moving in the right direction. There's got to be some form of heart change that takes place. In Joel chapter 2, Now therefore, says, Lord, turn unto me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. Without change, there's not repentance. The other day, my, yesterday, uh, Friday, my son was coming home from school, and he was just a sweaty mess. It had been one of those Fridays where they played on the playground. It's Alabama. They, I mean, just the hair is mashed to his face. It's drenching. I'm like, whew. And I'm like, hop in the shower. And he says, why? And I'm like, have you seen yourself? But he goes, why would I take a shower if in two hours we're going to go to the football game I'm playing outside again? At a point. Why take a shower when he's going to get just as funky again in two hours? See, repentance, contrition, confession without change is like having your truck washed and detailed before you go mud riding. Change is supposed to be my car is muddy, I'm going to get it clean and no longer go down that road again. That's what the idea here is. Change is, I'm realizing the pathways that are leading me to this spot, and I want to adjust. It doesn't mean the next road you take is going to be perfect. There may be potholes, but then you change. I'm not going to take that road again. I'm not going to take that road again. And you find, through the grace of God, the right actions. And as you're adjusting and making adjustments, you're going to start seeing yourself more successful. That's why you watch college football and pro football. After halftime, it seems like a totally different team comes out. Because for the first two quarters, the coaches are making notes on what they have to adjust at the half. 
and they're going to tweak, and they're going to tweak, and they're going to tweak, and they're going to shift people around, and they're going to change the formation. They're going to change whether or not we're going to run, we're going to pass, we're going to spread. We're going to, they change it all. That's a, and everyone said, well, why didn't they start off like that? They didn't know. They didn't know what they were facing. The most frustrating football games to watch are those who don't make adjustments. Can I tell you, if you've ran the ball 15 times five yards, the running game's not there. Y'all ever watch that and get frustrated? Like, why are we running the ball? Yeah, they're not making adjustments. But this is our lives. The, the idea of insanity is doing the same thing over and again, expecting different results. But for some reason, when it comes to me and my spiritual life, I'm exempt. I don't have to change. It will change. No. No. Repentance is not just about, just part of the transformation by which a sinner becomes a saint. It's an attitude of the heart with accompanying actions that should mark a change in the believer's life. When the heart is profoundly changed, the consequences will be a change of actions. If I watch my undoing, my issues causing hurt inside of Carling, and I'm brokenhearted by that, and then I do it again the next day, and again the next day, at what point do you go, you really didn't care? Because what I'm doing is, my bad, my bad. Why don't you stop getting so sensitive? Because I don't want to change. Repentance looks back and goes, I caused a mess, I'm heartbroken for my mess, I want to confess and figure out why I did that, and then I want to pivot and not do it again. Number four, last point. So we've got contrition, we've got confession, we've got change. And our last C, conciliation. I don't, I don't hear this talked much, but as I was last night just going through my life and when I'm looking at repentance and what it should be, you should have a brokenheartedness. You should have a confession of what you've done. And that's not just to God. That's to your spouse. It's to your friends. It's to your family. It's looking at somebody and saying, I, I'm sorry and I can be better than this. It's looking at somebody confessing, I see what I have done inside of you and I'm very, very sorry. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to do my best to make these changes in my life. And then what conciliation does is it's owning your sin and empathizing and sympathizing with those you've sinned against. One of the hardest things to do is not just cleaning up the mess by saying I'm sorry and doing something like that, but it's also this whole idea of sitting with somebody that you've offended. And repentance is supposed to be bringing back together. When we repent to God, He draws us back together. If you're going through life saying, my bad, and you're not seeing the reconnection, and it's not all your fault, hear me out, there has to be two sides. People have to offer forgiveness. You ask for forgiveness, they have to respond. We get all that. But at what point do we look at and go, I'm looking to restore relationship? That's where we're supposed to be. 
many of us want to sweep it under a rug, but confession is trying to fix the problem. Confession is trying to restore the relationships. Confession is, and repentance is trying to, to fix what's broken again. It's going back and making amends for some people. But can I tell you, when it comes to God, we can't clean that mess up. My daughter is eight, and she is big into makeup. And it's interesting. She came out of the room the other day looking like a clown. I'm not trying to be mean, it just was. I mean, at first I thought her brother punched her in the face because it was like purple and black, and I'm like, what just happened? And I realized it was makeup. I'm like, oh, sweetie, you look beautiful. Bless your heart. Let's clean that up. And then she would try it again, and she would try it again, and she would try You know, she's, she's learning, going through the process. It was all good until I went into my bedroom to see where she was doing her makeup routine. And I saw her mascara and her lipstick smeared into my carpet. And I've got a very light-colored carpet. And I went, what is this? I don't know. I'm going to give you two more tests. What is this? Makeup? Well, yeah. I mean, it's not... An airplane didn't crash. I mean, it's obvious it's your makeup. It's smeared into my carpet, McKenna. Sorry, Dad. I said, no, you don't, you don't understand. She goes, I'll clean it up. I went, go ahead, clean it up. She got a paper towel. Didn't do a thing. Didn't do a thing. And then she starts, she's rubbing, and, and, and I can see like she's getting nervous. Because she realizes no matter what she does, it's not, it's smearing. So I'm watching, and I'm watching. Give me, give me a minute, Dad. Give me a minute. I'll fix it. I'll fix it. I'll fix it. And she just keeps. She gets water. Tries. She gets air. I just let her sit there. Watch her do it. And then I see this big sigh. She turns around, just tears rolling on her face, going, I, it's not coming out. I said, I know. I know. I, I, I know what makeup does to a carpet. Just. She's saying, I'm so sorry. She's starting to cry. She's packing up her makeup. I said, we're going to put our makeup in the bathroom where there's tile. Okay? We're not going to do that again. But she kept trying to clean up her mess that she couldn't clean up. It just smears. This is how our lives are with God. As we find ourselves trying to clean up our own messes over and over and over again, and at what point do you realize you can't fix yourself in your mess? Not without him. So I got a shampoo machine. Got it all sucked right up. Because there's something more powerful than me trying to do my own way to make things right with God. The cross of Calvary, when Jesus died, he was the spot remover for all of our sin. He is the only way to reconcile back with God. 
And this is where we find ourselves in this passage when it says, humble yourselves to pray, seek my face, turn from your ways. What he's saying is, stop trying to do everything your way. Understand that your ways of doing things aren't okay. Let it break your heart, confess it, stop doing it, and then let me, God, help you restore our relationship again. But the problem is, is so many times we want to be so prideful that we can just say, oh, whatever, or my bad God, or whatever. There's not a heart change. True repentance is me going before God's going, I can't fix this. I'm not just saying I'm sorry because it's the right thing to do. What I'm looking at God going is, God, I am an absolute mess without you. I cause more messes than I fix without you. I am the destroyer of my world and everybody else's world without you. I need you. Realizing that real repentance is total reliance on him. It's not just with our words. It's not by just saying and confessing our sins. It's truly pulling back to him and saying, I can't do this anymore. I need you. And this is where many of us are right now. In this moment, we're going to take a quick pause and go, are we truly repenting of our sins? Or are we just trying to clean up our own mess? Are we just trying to go through the motions? Are we just being super spiritual and religious, but we're not actually changing our lives? Are we really sorrowful for what we've been doing, or are we just saying, it's, it is what it is, get over yourself, God. Just be happy that I'm at church. Just be happy that I'm here raising my hands. You owe me one, big guy. No. You want the presence of God in your life? Repentance is part of your experience. Not once, not twice. It can be eight times a day. I don't know. But a continual life in the presence of God is a continual life of repentance. I can't cause the nations to repent if I can't get myself to repent. A person who lives a life of repentance is a person who changes other people's worlds for the positive. It's the person that finds themselves a carrier of his presence. It's a person who doesn't need somebody to hype them up in a church, but they bring the energy into a service because they've been walking with God all the time. No, these are the things that we need. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one's looking around. This was a hard thing for me because when I was a kid, I was raised in church. I said a sinner's prayer when I was like seven or eight. It was the right thing to do, I guess. I was baptized because my friends were getting baptized. It was the right thing to do. But at what point do you make a confession of your faith because you know exactly what you're doing, not because everybody else? Maybe you're in this room today and you say, Pete, I need Jesus in my life. I need to repent of my sins. I need to change my actions. I need to do all of those things because I'm tired of living the same issues over and over again. I need the presence of God. I want the presence of God, but I'm living a life in sin with no one looking around. And if that's you today, just slide your hand up. We're going to make this act of forgiveness. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hands popping up. Hands popping up. Hands popping up. Still going. 
Still going. Give it five more seconds. Five. Yeah. Four. Yeah. Three. Put your hands back down. Two. Beautiful. There's a call for repentance, not because he's mad at you, but because he wants you to experience him. Sin does not stand in the presence of an almighty God. But today is a day of freedom and liberation. We no longer are bound to the sin because of the cross. We are no longer just a blot, a mess, a smear. We are no longer an accident. We are destined and designed by God for his, his presence. You are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. The presence of God no longer lives in a temple, but wants to live inside of you. And it is our beautiful honor to repent and to change and to make uh, uh, amends with him today. So right now, with, with no one's looking around, people have raised their hands. I just want everybody in this room, whether you raise your hand or not, just to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. My heart is broken for sin that I've done. I'm sorry that I haven't believed in you, that I haven't lived your way. Forgive me of my sins. And I choose today to be a carrier of your presence. I love you. I need you. Amen and amen. Today, I want you to hear me out. Everybody looking around. God's presence is available not just here when we're playing our songs, not just here when we're worshiping. It's available on your ride home. It's available when you get home. It's available on your ride to work. It's when you're with your kids. You can put some music on in the shower, find his prayer. You can find many, many ways because God doesn't need you to be here. What he needs is a heart wanting to connect with him. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.